Well, church family, if you have your copy of God's word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Hebrews chapter four, where this morning we'll be looking at verses 11 through 16. And as you find your place there, I'd be remiss if I didn't just say publicly a thank you uh, to Jim Smith. Uh, who uh, pinched hit for me last week. I got sick on Friday night and uh, wasn't feeling well through Saturday and I didn't wanna come and get anybody else sick. And so uh, Jim stood on my behalf in this service and Jim, I'm very grateful, a powerful word and message for us to hear. And I'm very grateful for you, uh, my brother. If you would follow along with me as we begin reading in verse 11. This is the word of the Lord for his people today. Therefore, let us strive, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account." Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Pray with me, Father. Would you help us see you more clearly and respond in obedience accordingly? We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. In the late 1970s, crime was rampant in many of our nation's cities. And along came a psychologist and a professor who came out with a paper that he produced. And in that paper, he said he scientifically had proven one thing, how to lower the aggression levels within men and in women. And in this academic journal, he began to describe how he would conduct these experiments where for over a period of time, he would have a group of men and a group of individuals who would stare at colors, two colors in particular, 153 participants. He divided them up into half. Half of them stared at the color pink for over an hour. Half stared at the color blue for over an hour. And then he brought these men together, 153 of them, and he tested them and he, and he tested their strength. And he measured it, their, their physical activity and aggression levels after having stared at those two colors. Every man who stared at the color blue maintained his strength. And all but two of the men who looked at the color pink were able to maintain their strength. So what that means is, is that most of the men that for a period of time stared at that color, which later became known as the Baker Miller pink. Not too long after he produced this study to naval officer commanders at a naval correctional center in Seattle, Washington, Gene Baker and Ron Miller turned one of their holding cells into this color pink. Now, if you can think for just a moment, this color pink had a particular shade that resembled Pepto-Bismol, the, the medicine that many of us have to take from time to time. And they painted every aspect of that cell pink, the walls and the floors and the ceilings and the bars. And they did this with almost every jail cell that existed within their correctional facility. 
And this was a facility that was rampant in crime and, and rampant in, in bad behavior. And then for 156 days, after they painted the jail cell the color pink, there were zero reported incidents. Later on, this, another group down in San Bernardino, California, a, a youth correctional facility, did the same thing and, and had the similar results. Well, I found a, a news article that was written in the late 70s that described what was going on in this instance. And one news journalist described it this way. She said that the, 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 the prisoners, they were calmer, they were quieter, they were less aggressive, and they seemed to be at rest. They seemed to be at rest. I don't know about you, but our text applies to the idea of rest. But my big takeaway is I think I'm going to throw away every pink shirt that I own and won't be wearing those anymore. Of course, years later, there was outcry and, and saying they were dehumanizing these men and, and these women in this correctional facilities. And it's one thing to, to talk about rest and the idea of staring at the color pink. It is quite another, my friends, to find a place of rest when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, to find a sense of, of calmness, to find a sense of peace. And this is the context in which we find our text this morning. The verses 11 and 12, they are a continuation of what we saw several weeks ago. And really it, it encompasses this idea where the writer of Hebrews was warning the people of God who were thinking about reverting back to Judaism. In particular, they were thinking about reverting back to their old way of life prior to Christ. And they were being tempted and they were being pleaded with by those that were outside of Christ. And so he says, beginning in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I'll remind us briefly, as I did several weeks ago, that rest comes from a person and not a pause. The place that we find our rest is in the relationship with Jesus. We can come to church and we can even have a Sabbath and, and go home, but, but when we're not worshiping, when we're not in union, when we're not in relationship, when we're not in fellowship with Jesus, friends, there, there is no rest, but only leisure that exists. And leisure and rest are not the same thing. Verse 11 and 12 are this direct correlation between our drifting and falling away and our walk with God in proportion to our obedience and our understanding and our reading and humbling ourselves before God's word. For he goes on in verse 12 and he says, the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit of the joints and of the marrow. And it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The reason and the reminder here that we should be diligent is because the word of God, it is living and active. The word of God is not a static thing, but it is active and it's constantly serving and it is doing things. It is changing us. But, but the word of God also, according to verse 12, it's a tool of, of judgment and, and execution, if you will. It's living and active because the word of God, it, it endures forever. It lives on forever. It has life in itself. As one scholar says, it is the very breath of God and it partakes of God's living character to us today so that if we want to know the heartbeat and the character of God, we must therefore know his word. 
because this is how he has spoken to his people. Now I wanna remind us just very briefly about things that we all know all too well but are good reminders for us this morning about and when it comes to the word of God. Number one is this, God's word is effectual. It does what it promises. It does what it sets out to do, to accomplish, to lead us to salvation, to sustain us, to, to motivate us, to, to pierce us, to, to change us. It, it holds no regard to how old you are. You can be 12 years old or 112 years old, yet the word of God is living and active and it will still change you and I today. This is why we care about what happens in our preschool ministry, on up to our kids and our students and our college, our young adults, all all the way through our boomers and our senior adults that, that we root our studies and, and we root our lives around being biblically faithful and knowing the word of God because it promises, it does what it promises to do. Number two is this, God's word is sufficient to change and sustain us. I can't change you and you can't change me. I can't sustain you and you can't sustain me. I can't change my wife and she sure is in the world can't, can't change me and, and I can't sustain her and, and she can't sustain me. No, that, that change and, and being sustained, it, it comes from humbling ourselves before his word. Why? Because it is sufficient. Thirdly, God's word is authoritative. What God says as his people, we must therefore respond and do. We must listen to it and know it and study it, but, but listening to it and even knowing it and, and studying it aren't enough. We, we apply it and we walk in it and we live in it because it is authoritative. As Wayne Grudem once said, and I agree with every word of this, he says, every word in the scripture is true in such a way that to disbelieve it or, or disobey any word of it is to disbelieve and to disobey God. Verse 12, it, it has this illusion, if you will, that speaks to a, a, an event that we know in the, book, in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, at Kadesh Barnea. Israel had disobeyed God's word, and, and God promises in Numbers 14 that not one of these who disobeyed me will see the promised land or enter into my rest. And then the people of God said, well, now we'll, we'll go do it. We hear you. And Moses warns them. He says, don't go in. If you do it, uh, if you do this, you're going to be destroyed. You'll be defeated by the Amalekites. You'll, you'll be defeated by the Canaanites. You, you're going without the presence of God, without the ark. And, and if you do this, there will be great tragedy, and they, they don't listen, and they they do it again and great tragedy and calamity comes. And so when we see this idea of a sharp double-edged sword, it is a warning to his people about judgment. That to disregard his word, just as Israel did in the wilderness, means that as his people, there are often consequences in our lives. There are consequences in the lives of those who are far from God that do not obey his word. He goes on in verse 13 and he says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must one day give an account. Such a peculiar turn of phrase in the words there, they are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. One scholar put it this way, that in the ancient world, when they would see that word exposed, it could have had one of two meanings that it could have carried with it this idea of, of two men engaged in battle or in a wrestling match. 
And one of the other opponents, he, he grabs the other man by the neck and he, and he forces that man to, to look him in the eye, to, to see him eye to eye, man to man, mano y mano, to, to look and to gaze, to be exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The other meaning of the understanding of this could have possibly been that in, in some cases within the ancient world, the one who was brought to trial, brought to court, and in the most grievous account, oftentimes would have a, a knife placed underneath their chin. So that at any time the, the magistrate or the judge would talk to the one, the defendant that would be there, they could never lower their face and, and they could never look away in any kind of shame that they had to look and, and they must face the judgment and, and face the consequence that exists there in that, that moment. No creature is hidden from his sight. When we come to his word, it scrutinizes us, it, it evaluates us, it motivates us, it, it changes us, and, and it judges us. It knows the, the motivations of our, of our heart and knows why we do the things that we do, and it informs those things, and it tells us rightly what we should know and rightly what we should understand. But then the text goes on in verse 14. And he says, yet in the, in the place of the warning of judgment, in the context of, of don't drift away, don't fall away, pursue rest in him, for the word of God is, is this thing, it is sufficient and, a, and authoritative for your life, and the consequence, if you don't listen in disobedience, comes judgment, but then he brings in the hope. And he doesn't leave us in shame and he doesn't leave us in condemnation and he doesn't leave us in judgment. He, he moves on and he says, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus is his name, the son of God. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. Notice he, he refers to Jesus in this moment as the, as the high priest. Jesus is the ultimate priest, the high priest. And, and this oftentimes can be lost on, on this audience of the significance of, of what that means. Jesus, our high priest, passed once and for all from the sight of his people. And at the ascension, he, he enters into the holy of holies, having shed his own blood, given his own life, costing him everything for you and for me. But the use of that term, the great high priest, is best understood when we understand that, that for the devout Jew, once a year on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest who represented all the people, he would enter into the holy of holies and he would sprinkle blood there on the, on the mercy seat to symbolically atone for all the sins of the people. But before that priest could ever enter into that room, of that sacred room of the Holy of Holies, he, he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins. And he, and he would stay long enough. And, and they were so afraid, these, these priests at times, that if they, they'd go into this room in the Holy of Holies, they would sew bells at the bottom of their robes. Because if he trifled with God, if he didn't atone properly, God would strike that priest down there in that room. And so they would put bells at the bottom of the robe so the people could hear them and a rope around him so that if the bells stopped moving, they knew that the priest had defiled the room and God had struck him down and they would somehow drag him out and get him out of there. They were that fearful in those moments and that 
afraid. But before he ever gets to the Holy of Holies, this, this high priest that existed, he, he would go through the door in the, in the outer court. And before he would do it, he would, he would throw some blood on the other side, his own blood to atone for those sins. Next is he would go into the holy place right before the Holy of Holies. He would do the same thing and he would sprinkle the blood and then he would enter into that room, past the veil, this three-portal entrance that one scholar said represents the coming before the three-triune God. Three sacrifices made before he enters into God's presence. And so when the writer of Hebrews says in verse 14, since then we have this great high priest, that we no longer need the priest to, to go through all the rooms and to sprinkle the blood. Why? Because this Jesus, to whom we worship and sing to today, has sprinkled his blood. He has shed his blood. He has atoned for, for my sins and for your sins. And so the grand point in, in emphasizing Jesus' superiority in this moment to these newly converted believers is because they were looking back in that moment at their old way of living life. And somewhere along the way, they, they forgot or they began to believe the lie that they were better off prior to coming to Christ. And so therefore, we're gonna look back at these Levitical laws and therefore we're gonna look back on, on our old faith of Judaism. We're gonna revert back to our old way of thinking and living and, and all of those things that come. And yet the writer of Hebrews, he says in this moment, there is no contest, friend. To the recipients in this letter, and the same is true of us today, there is no contest between the old way in which we used to live before Christ and the new way that he has given us now as we follow him. This applies to the, to the college student that exists here in this room and in the next service that, that is tempted to revert back to the old lifestyle and being consumed with, with their old life and their old ways. The high school student that's here today in this room and in other places that is struggling with identity. The, the mom who's, who's struggling today with balancing and managing kids, perhaps work and, and even beauty as it fades and it is fleeting. It applies to the dad who finds himself today having his identity wrapped up in, in what he does and the performance that comes along with that. It applies to the grandparent who, who still worries for their kids and their grandkids or worries about insurance and financial stability. It applies to all of those things in the sense that what the writer is saying to you and I today is that Jesus is better than all of our worry and all of our doubts. He is superior to all of them. And then if we come before the word, which is living and active, that pierces bone and marrow, that divides us, that judges us, that sustains us, that reassures us, he is simply just saying, this Jesus is better than all of those other things. Amen. He says, in describing Jesus, he says this high priest, he is, he is, for we do not have this high priest who is unable to sympathize, in other words, what he means is that Jesus does sympathize with us. The word sympathize here in this moment, it means to share the experience with another. 
to have a common experience alongside. And, and what it says is that when that happens, when there is a, a common experience that exists, this Jesus who was tempted in every way, and therefore he, he knows how we feels. And even more so than that, he feels what we feels. He, he carries the sense of a, of a mother feeling for her broken child or, or a brother who looks at his sister and feels and senses the brokenness that exists within there. It goes beyond just shared compassion passion and it includes an element of active help to the one that suffers. This Jesus, the great high priest, he, he is able to sympathize with us in the midst of our weakness because he has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. Therefore, because of all of this, friends, all of these things are true. If the word of God is all of these things, if the word of God does these things within our life, if Jesus is this person, if he is the, the great high priest who is able to sympathize with us, and yet there are some that may find themselves today in this room in, in danger of, of walking away and, and growing not in godliness, but growing in the, in the ways of the world or in the midst of their doubt and in the midst of their confusion. Therefore, if all of these things are true, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and we may find grace to help in time of need. I find one of the most remarkable things that this, this text and this group of scriptures really exist in, in verse 16. You see, up until this moment, it's always been described as the, as the throne of God to come and worship before the throne of God. Yet, yet the writer of Hebrews says, now we, we draw not near to the throne of God, but notice the distinction. He says, we draw near to the throne of grace. We move to the place where grace flows. Calvin famously described it this way. He says, the basis of this confidence is that this new throne it's not necessarily marked by a majesty that, that overpowers us or, or overwhelms us, but rather it is one that, that brings us confidence. In other words, the glory of God does not bring us and cannot fill us with despair if we are looking at it correctly. Because it is not just any throne, it is the throne. It's the one, the throne that, that frees our minds from our fears. It adorns us with grace. It encourages us with the, with the sweetness and the tenderness of God that exists from our heavenly father. It's almost as if God changes his throne and he modifies it so that we don't have to sprinkle the blood anymore, that Christ is the one that has done this. Now, therefore, we don't come to him out of a, a sense of, of fear that he would smite us, but rather we come as the writer says, with confidence. We come with assurance and, and boldness because Jesus is all of these things and there is therefore no reason why his people should ever avoid him or, or run from him and avoid approaching him. There's an old Spanish story of a father and a son who had become estranged. And so one day the son runs away and the father is frustrated and eventually the father sets out to find the son and he searches for months and months, but to no avail, he, the son doesn't return and he, and he can't find him. And so in a last desperate effort to find him, the father put an ad in the Madrid newspaper and the ad read this, said, Dear Mateo, meet me in front of the newspaper office, office at noon on Saturday 
all is forgiven. I love you, your father. That following Saturday, 800 Mateos showed up <laughs> looking for forgiveness and yearning for the love of their father. People need that in their life. I think some of you this morning need to hear that and be reminded of that. Therefore, if Jesus is our great high priest who is able to sympathize us with us and all of our needs and our wants, who understands us, but who in respect has been tempted as we are, therefore let us with confidence draw near to his throne of grace for this is where we find grace and this is where we receive mercy. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is inspired, it is authoritative in our life and it sustains us. So Father, we pray now as we come to a time where we approach your table. We pray that we would do it in a way that reveres you and magnifies your name, but we, we come in confidence and with boldness because you are who you say you are. And so Father, help us now meet with you in these remaining moments. But we ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.